Chapter sixty six of Barnaby Rudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Barnaby Rudge by Charles Dickens. Chapter sixty six. Although he had had no rest upon the previous night, and had watched with little intermission for some weeks past, sleeping only in the day by starts and snatches, Mr. Haredale, from the dawn of morning until sunset, sought his niece in every place where he deemed it possible she could have taken refuge. All day long nothing save a draught of water passed his lips, though he prosecuted his inquiries far and wide, and never so much as sat down once. In every quarter he could think of, at Chigwell and in London, at the houses of the tradespeople with whom he dealt, and of the friends he knew, he pursued his search. A prey to the most harrowing anxieties and apprehensions, he went from magistrate to magistrate, and finally to the Secretary of State. The only comfort he received was from this minister, who assured him that the government, being now driven to the exercise of the extreme prerogatives of the crown, were determined to exert them, that a proclamation would probably be out upon the morrow, giving to the military discretionary and unlimited power in the suppression of the riots, that the sympathies of the king, the administration, and both houses of parliament, and indeed all good men of every religious persuasion, were strongly with the injured Catholics and that justice should be done them at any cost or hazard. He told him, moreover, that other persons whose houses had been burnt had, for a time, lost sight of their children or their relatives, but had in every case within his knowledge succeeded in discovering them, that his complaint should be remembered and fully stated in the instructions given to the officers in command and to all the inferior myrmidons of justice, and that everything that could be done to help him should be done with a good will and in good faith. Grateful for this consolation, feeble as it was in its reference to the past, and little hope as it afforded him in connection with the subject of distress which lay nearest to his heart, and really thankful for the interest the minister expressed and seemed to feel in his condition, Mr. Haredale withdrew. He found himself, with the night coming on, alone in the streets, and destitute of any place in which to lay his head. He entered an hotel near Charing Cross, and ordered some refreshment in a bed. He saw that his faint and worn appearance attracted the attention of the landlord and his waiters, and, thinking that they might suppose him to be penniless, took out his purse and laid it on the table. It was not that, the landlord said, in a faltering voice. If he were one of those who had suffered by the rioters, he durst not give him entertainment. He had a family of children, and had been twice warned to be careful in receiving guests. He hardly prayed his forgiveness, but what could he do? Nothing. No man felt that more sincerely than Mr. Haredale. He told the man as much, and left the house. Feeling that he might have anticipated this occurrence, after what he had seen at Chigwell in the morning, where no man dared to touch a spade, though he offered a large reward to all who would come and dig among the ruins of his house, he walked along the strand, too proud to expose himself to another refusal, and of too generous a spirit to involve in distress or ruin any honest tradesman who might be weak enough to give him shelter. He wandered into one of the streets by the side of the river, and was pacing in a thoughtful manner up and down, thinking of things that had happened long ago, when he heard a servant-man at an upper window call to another on the opposite side of the street that the mob were setting fire to Newgate. To Newgate, where that man was! His failing strength returned, his energies came back with tenfold vigour on the instant. If it were possible, if they should set the murderer free— was he, after all he had undergone, to die with the suspicion of having slain his own brother, dimly gathering about him? 
He had no consciousness of going to the jail, but there he stood before it. There was the crowd wedged and pressed together in a dense, dark, moving mass, and there were the flames soaring up into the air. His head turned round and round. Lights flashed before his eyes, and he struggled hard with two men. "'Nay, nay,' said one. "'Be more yourself, my good sir. We attract attention here. Come away. What can you do among so many men?' "'The gentleman's always for doing something,' said the other, forcing him along as he spoke. "'I like him for that. I do like him for that.' They had by this time got him into a court, hard by the prison. He looked from one to the other, and as he tried to release himself, felt that he tottered on his feet. He who had spoken first was the old gentleman whom he had seen at the Lord Mayor's. The other was John Gruby, who had stood by him so manfully at Westminster. "'What does this mean?' he asked them faintly. "'How came we together?' "'On the skirts of the crowd,' returned the distiller. "'But come with us. Pray come with us. You seem to know my friend here?' "'Surely,' said Mr. Haredale, looking in a kind of stupor at John. "'He'll tell you, then,' returned the old gentleman, "'that I am a man to be trusted. He's my servant. "'He was lately, as you know, I have no doubt, in Lord George Gordon's service, "'but he left it, and brought in pure good will to me and others who are marked by the rioters,' such intelligence as he had picked up of their designs. "'On one condition, please, sir,' said John, touching his hat. "'No evidence against my lord, a misled man, a kind-hearted man, sir. My lord never intended this.' "'The condition will be observed, of course,' rejoined the old distiller. "'It's a point of honour. But come with us, sir. Pray, come with us.' John Gruby added no entreaties, but he adopted a different kind of persuasion by putting his arm through one of Mr. Haredale's, while his master took the other, and leading him away with all speed. Sensible, from a strange lightness in his head, and a difficulty in fixing his thoughts on anything, even to the extent of bearing his companions in his mind for a minute together without looking at them, that his brain was affected by the agitation and suffering through which he had passed, and to which he was still a prey, Mr. Haredale let them lead him where they would. As they went along, he was conscious of having no command over what he said or thought, and that he had a fear of going mad. The distiller lived, as he had told him when they first met, on Holborn Hill, where he had great storehouses and drove a large trade. They approached his house by a back entrance, lest they should attract the notice of the crowd, and went into an upper room which faced towards the street. The windows, however, in common with those of every other room in the house, were boarded up inside, in order that out of doors all might appear quite dark. They laid him on a sofa in this chamber, perfectly insensible. But John, immediately fetching a surgeon, who took from him a large quantity of blood, he gradually came to himself. As he was for the time too weak to walk, they had no difficulty in persuading him to remain there all night, and got him to bed without loss of a minute. That done, they gave him a cordial and some toast, and presently a pretty strong composing draught, under the influence of which he soon fell into a lethargy, and for a time forgot his troubles. The vintner, who was a very hearty old fellow and a worthy man, had no thoughts of going to bed himself, for he had received several threatening warnings from the rioters, and had indeed gone out that evening to try and gather from the conversation of the mob whether his house was to be the next attacked. He sat all night in an easy-chair in the same room, dozing a little now and then, and received from time to time the reports of John Gruby and two or three other trustworthy persons in his employ, who went out into the streets as scouts, and for whose entertainment an ample allowance of good cheer, 
which the old vintner, despite his anxiety, now and then attacked himself, was set forth in an adjoining chamber. These accounts were of a sufficiently alarming nature from the first, but as the night wore on they grew so much worse, and involved such a fearful amount of riot and destruction, that in comparison with these new tidings all the previous disturbances sunk to nothing. The first intelligence that came was of the taking of Newgate and the escape of all the prisoners, whose track, as they made up Holborn and into the adjacent streets, was proclaimed to those citizens who were shut up in their houses by the rattling of their chains, which formed a dismal concert, and was heard in every direction, as though so many forges were at work. The flames, too, shone so brightly through the vintner's skylights, that the rooms and staircases below were nearly as light as in broad day, while the distant shouting of the mob seemed to shake the very walls and ceilings. At length they were heard approaching the house, and some minutes of terrible anxiety ensued. They came close up, and stopped before it, but after giving three loud yells went on, and although they returned several times that night, creating new alarms each time, they did nothing there, having their hands full. Shortly after they had gone away for the first time, one of the scouts came running in with the news that they had stopped before Lord Mansfield's house in Bloomsbury Square. Soon afterwards there came another and another, and then the first returned again, and so, by little and little, their tale was this, that the mob gathering round Lord Mansfield's house had called on those within to open the door, and receiving no reply, for Lord and Lady Mansfield were at that moment escaping by the back way, forced an entrance according to their usual custom, that they then began to demolish the house with great fury, and setting fire to it in several parts, involved in a common ruin the whole of the costly furniture, the plate and jewels, a beautiful gallery of pictures, the rarest collection of manuscripts ever possessed by any one private person in the world, and worse than all, because nothing could replace this loss, the great law library, on almost every page of which were notes in the judge's own hand of inestimable value, being the results of the study and experience of his whole life, that while they were howling and exulting round the fire a troop of soldiers, with a magistrate among them, came up, and being too late, for the mischief was by that time done, began to disperse the crowd. That the riot act being read, and the crowd still resisting, the soldiers received orders to fire, and levelling their muskets, shot dead at the first discharge six men and a woman, and wounded many persons, and loading again directly fired another volley, but over the people's heads it was supposed, as none were seen to fall, that thereupon, and daunted by the shrieks and tumult, the crowd began to disperse, and the soldiers went away, leaving the killed and wounded on the ground, which they had no sooner done than the rioters came back again, and taking up the dead bodies and the wounded people, formed into a rude procession, having the bodies in the front, that in this order they paraded off with a horrible merriment, fixing weapons in the dead men's hands to make them look as if alive, and preceded by a fellow ringing Lord Mansfield's dinner-bell with all his might. The scouts reported further that this party, meeting with some others who had been at similar work elsewhere, they all united into one, and drafting off a few men with the killed and wounded, marched away to Lord Mansfield's country seat at Canwood, between Hampstead and Highgate, bent upon destroying that house likewise, and lighting up a great fire there, which from that height should be seen all over London. But in this they were disappointed, for a party of horse having arrived before them, they retreated faster than they went, and came straight back to town. There being now a great many parties in the streets, each went to work according to its humour, 
and a dozen houses were quickly blazing, including those of Sir John Fielding and two other justices, and four in Holborn, one of the greatest thoroughfares in London, which were all burning at the same time, and burned until they went out of themselves, for the people cut the engine hose, and would not suffer the firemen to play upon the flames. At one house near Moorfields they found in one of the rooms some canary-birds in cages, and these they cast into the fire alive. The poor little creatures screamed, it was said, like infants, when they were flung upon the blaze, and one man was so touched that he tried in vain to save them, which roused the indignation of the crowd and nearly cost him his life. At this same house one of the fellows who went through the rooms, breaking the furniture and helping to destroy the building, found a child's doll, a poor toy, which he exhibited at the window to the mob below as the image of some unholy saint which the late occupants had worshipped. While he was doing this, another man with an equally tender conscience, they had both been foremost in throwing down the canary-birds for roasting alive, took his seat on the parapet of the house, and harangued the crowd from a pamphlet circulated by the association relative to the true principles of Christianity. Meanwhile, the Lord Mayor, with his hands in his pockets, looked on as an idle man might look at any other show, and seemed mightily satisfied to have got a good place. Such were the accounts brought to the old vintner by his servants as he sat at the side of Mr. Haredale's bed, having been unable even to doze after the first part of the night, too much disturbed by his own fears, by the cries of the mob, the light of the fires, and the firing of the soldiers. Such, with the addition of the release of all the prisoners in the new jail at Clerkenwell, and as many robberies of passengers in the streets as the crowd had leisure to indulge in, were the scenes of which Mr. Haredale was happily unconscious, and which were all enacted before midnight. End of chapter 66 Recording by Deborah Lynn